Alright, hello, hello everyone. Today I'd like to do something a little bit different. I read a lot of books, most of them are in the health genre, but either way, whenever I learn something new, or see something for the first time, or see something that I might want to reference later, maybe put that into one of my own books, I just fold the top of the page into a dog ear, and I make a little mark next to that point. And I thought today on this podcast, I would go through a book that I just finished, and just share with you those interesting points that I saved for myself. And before we do, I just want to mention that there are no sponsors here, there are no ads, but I do sell things, I sell books, and I write books, I also sell supplements, and we do health consultations, if you email us or reach out to me or us in any way, we will give you our best advice for your health, whether you take it or not, whether you buy our products or not. So you can see all of this, all of my books, all of our YouTube and Instagram channels and everything is on my website, noticebooks.org. Notice is spelled not us, notusbooks.org. Everything is on notusbooks.org. Okay, so this book is called The Citizen Patient, Reforming Healthcare for the Sake of the Patient, Not the System. This is written by a medical doctor, an MD, Norton M. Hadler. And the copy I have here is an uncorrected proof. I just bought it at a thrift shop, so I'm not 100% sure on what exactly the final copy looks like. But I thought it was pretty good. I thought this book was pretty dense, though. That was its main problem. I'm pretty well versed in this genre, and it was a little bit difficult for me to read and understand. I think it's just due to Norton's age. He's an older gentleman. And he's obviously very smart, he's got a lot of information in his own head, just sometimes some of these people are not the greatest communicators in the world, and since that's my main job is to communicate, maybe I can make this a little bit clearer for you. It was a really good condemnation of the medical establishment, that's always good for me in in our business, I think. When people within the medical world say how bad it is, people with regular medical doctor degrees call out the medical system great for us because we are outside of the medical system. So I've read a lot in this genre, but I haven't actually seen this point here. This is the first point that I marked out. Quote, Some 25 years ago, I made the tongue-in-cheek comment that most trials for rheumatoid arthritis were carried out in the same 300 patients. That's because there were rheumatologists who were handmaidens of the pharmaceutical industry and who had a stable of patients they paid to volunteer for study after study. There still are such physicians in all specialties which have their stable of patients but now are handmaidens for CROs, which is a contract research organization. In fact, their numbers are growing, as is the size of their stables, in large part because these drug trialists are handsomely compensated for their efforts. The subject patients may or may not be compensated, but their medical surgical care is only compensated to the degree stipulated by the RCT protocol. RCT stands for Randomized Clinical Trials. I get really tangled up with all these acronyms. All other care, including care relating to the disease being treated in the study, is covered by whatever insurance mechanism is available to them. So the drug trialists are paid for monitoring the subject patient's progress in the trial and paid again for whatever other services they provide the patient subject. Many of the drug trialists have diamonds on their pinkies or in their ears for all this effort. Okay, so that was just one paragraph, and yeah, he brought this point up that I haven't really seen focused on before, the fact that people who do drug trials can do more than one trial. One person can sign up and do multiple trials. They actually get paid to do that, so I've known several people who were like drug addicts, actually, like their lowlifes, and they did medical trials. 
Like, people with something to lose don't tend to do medical trials. It's kind of, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel here looking for desperate people, whether they're desperate for money or they're desperate for their health. So people can make a career out of doing this, doing multiple drug trials. Now, there's quite a lot of problems with repeat subjects in multiple studies. From my perspective in nutrition, I would say, well, that would make them a worse patient overall. People who have done multiple studies, they've taken multiple drugs here now, maybe for a long time. They're probably going to be in far worse shape than the average person picked off the street. So they're not a very good subject. One of the major problems with human trials in the first place is they lack an actual control. You hear this, you know, RCT, randomized controlled trial. But I would come in and argue that they don't have controls at all. They only have people who are or are not taking a drug. That's not very good. In laboratory animals, we give them little rat pellets or monkey pellets or guinea pig pellets that have all the essential nutrients. So they are an actual control group. Those animals should be completely healthy from birth to death. Unless we do something different, that's the benefit of using animals. They're truly controlled. So if this is true that researchers have groups of people or a stable of patients, as it's called here in the book, then to me this makes the data even more worthless than it already is. Because, of course, this is just combined with many of the other problems involved in drug trials and the politics involved and all the shadiness involved. There are problems even without shadiness. As I just mentioned, the lack of a control. That matters even if everybody has perfectly good intentions. So I, th I thought that was interesting. He mentioned that more throughout the book, the possibility and the consequences of potentially having repeat customers in drug trials. So the next point here, and by the way, I don't always remember why exactly I saved a certain point. I just finished this book, so it's fresh in my mind, but I can save points if I agree with them or disagree with them, so I'm just reading them all to you here. On March 31st, 2008, AstraZeneca trumpeted the early closing of the Jupiter trial in company announcements. The results, after only two years, yielded unequivocal evidence, in quotes, that their cholesterol-lowering statin, Crestor, was too effective to withhold it from anyone who was well and had normal cholesterol levels, but had an elevation in another normal blood constituent, the C-reactive protein. As we will discuss in the next chapter, I am the skeptical physician who is unwilling to let anyone test my cholesterol until I see the unequivocal data that taking a statin yields meaningful benefit for me. Now AstraZeneca wants me to get my CRP measured so that I can swallow Crestor if it's elevated. And then he goes on to talk more, much more about the Jupiter trial, which I'm not going to do here. So what he's saying here is that the company AstraZeneca was looking for more reasons to prescribe more people their statin drug, which, by the way, is one of the worst possible drugs that you could be on. You're practically guaranteed to have problems in your soft tissues, such as your skin, lungs, brain, hormones, because your hormones are made from cholesterol probably be lethargic, and then on your way to dementia, and then full-blown Alzheimer's. We actually call this, in the business, we call it a physician-caused disease. Because you can't get Alzheimer's or MS or Parkinson's unless you take terrible advice from a doctor. You avoid salt, you avoid cholesterol. And the worst of all is if you take a statin drug. It's guaranteed deterioration. The longer you stay on it, the worse it is. So they're looking to prescribe this to more people. So they're trying to prescribe it, and... This is pretty mainstream now, by the way. They're trying to prescribe, not just AstraZeneca, many companies are trying to prescribe statins to younger people, the people for all kinds of unrelated problems. And in this case, they were using the Jupiter trial to put people with an elevated C-reactive protein on statin drugs. So they're looking for another marker, not even cholesterol anymore. 
And you just heard here from a real doctor, this Hadler is a researcher and a rheumatologist, I believe. And he said he's unwilling to let anyone test my cholesterol until I see unequivocal data that taking a statin yields meaningful benefit for me. So he's not convinced that a test is necessary. He will not let someone test him until it is shown that taking a statin actually yields a benefit. Because that's the only point of a cholesterol test. The doctors have nothing else for you. They know that diet changes actually don't usually do that much for cholesterol because they're not doing those diet changes properly and they're not using the 90th century nutrients. But in trials with diets, typically it doesn't impressively lower the cholesterol, so that's why statins are used. They do work. Problem is, cholesterol is an essential nutrient. Elevated blood cholesterol and triglycerides don't cause any disease on earth. Elevated blood cholesterol and triglycerides are signs of something else. In this case, we would say that it's caused by processed foods and nutrient deficiencies. And it can be a long conversation that we're not going to get into, but I saved this just because it was interesting that they were using the CRP, the C-reactive protein, as a measure to try and convince more people to get on statin drugs, even without elevated cholesterol. So that's a pretty evil thing to me. I'm not sure what other word to use other than evil, but um, I honestly don't even expect the people who make research or market the drugs, I don't expect them to fully appreciate the consequences of these drugs. I know that sounds crazy, aren't they the ones that are supposed to know the most about this? Well, yeah, yes and no. A lot of these professions can't see the forest for the trees, and so they see the result that they're looking for, the lowering in cholesterol, and they genuinely think that's a good thing, because they don't understand the relationship between cholesterol and your nervous system or your hormone system, and so on. If they did, then they would probably see it as just as evil as I do, and they would probably quit their jobs. Okay, next thing I saved. Americans support an enormous enterprise in the American healthcare system. There's a first sentence there. Isn't that interesting to think of the American healthcare system as an enterprise? But it really is. It's an industry. Hospitals get paid to be hospitals. Hospitals have administrative staffs, huge ones, and that's a massive problem in the modern world, is ever-growing bureaucracies in the hospital systems. And actually, Hadler here in this book, he talks a lot about that. But back to reading. To do so, we expend nearly 20% of the gross domestic product of this country. 20%, hey? That's huge. Now, I'm not American. My wife is American. Spend a lot of time in America. And I know they spend a lot of money on healthcare. First of all, of course, our main market base for health products, not disease management that doctors sell. We sell health products that promote health. And most of our market is in America. It's Americans that want this stuff. They do spend tons of money on their health care, and uh, we would say that they're worse off for it. That's why we have an industry, the alternative health industry. Now, 20% of the gross domestic product. I'll get back to reading, but just one more quip here. Where my wife lives outside of Houston, which I'm not allowed to live full-time, we're working on it. There in Texas, there must be a hospital every 100 meters, every 500 feet. I don't know. It's, I mean, they're a stone's throw away from each other. I can't believe how many hospitals there are. I can believe how many sick people there are, but it blows my mind just even within our regular neighborhood, how many hospitals are there, how much money is going into this healthcare system. Now, I know how little of it is going towards actual prevention and nutrition and stuff that actually works. But even I can't fathom the amount that's spent on all the administrative costs. It must be more than the actual healthcare, which is why, you know, on the insurance form, a glove and a needle is cost 10, 20, 40, 80 times as much as it really costs. All these markups are because of the burgeoning bureaucratic costs. 
in the hospital system. No other citizen recommits half as much to their healthcare system. What are we purchasing with this largesse? Why are we outstripping all sister nations, many of which have enviable health outcomes compared to ours? So he's saying a lot of countries, most countries, since America spends more than every other country, many other countries have better health than we do. That means they're all getting a better bang for their buck. Every country with better health than America that does it for less money, it goes to show that expensive medicine is not the best medicine. Now, I did save more here about uh, the pricing structure of hospitals. But for you guys, I just want to jump to a chart that he's got here. Now, this chart lists a bunch of different diseases, heart disease, cancer, mental disorders, trauma-related disorders, osteoarthritis, pulmonary diseases or lung diseases, hypertension or high blood pressure, diabetes, back problems, and lipid abnormalities, or high cholesterol, basically. And what I thought was interesting, and what I know in real life from working in the health business, that women show up more than men in every category except for two. So they're saying more men have lipid abnormalities and heart disease, but everything else women have more. And the reason I wanted to point this out is because we point this out all the time, and people seem to enjoy it, because it seems intuitively true just when you hear it, that the reason women have more of most of these diseases is because women listen to their doctor more than men do. Women go to their doctor more than men do. They start going to the doctor at a younger age. And I would say they have a lot more trust in general in the medical system. And so they do. They go in for the tests. They go in for the checkups and the mammograms and the pap smears. And they get more diagnoses as a result. And following the diagnoses, they tend to take the advice more than the men. Meaning they take the drugs, they get the surgeries. And in the health business, I know that a man and woman who have been married for 40 years and eat basically the same thing, I'm more likely to be speaking to the woman. Who's coming to me? The woman. And she's got a whole bunch of problems. The man's probably not in the greatest shape, but he's standing fine. A lot of men I've seen standing there chewing tobacco you know, they eat cheeseburgers, they eat whatever they want, they do whatever they want. They're not listening to this nonsense from me. They're not listening to this nonsense from the doctor. They're not listening to this nonsense from their wife. So the wife will cook the dinner. She will hand him the salt shaker and the pepper shaker. I've seen a lot of these women scared to eat pepper too. They don't, they don't even understand why, right? They think all this stuff is bad for them. Doctor tells them salt and cholesterol is bad for them. So the wife cuts off the fat on her steak and gives it to the husband. Or she'll eat the chicken breast, give him the skin. Or she'll eat the chicken breast and make him a steak right? She won't put salt on her food. She'll be the one with the diabetes, blood pressure, obesity, all this stuff. That's why she's coming to me for help. And he may or may not have some of these symptoms, but uh, he doesn't care. I'm just saying this because this shows in how much we spend too. Women are spending more money on health. They're costing the system more money on health. They're getting worse health outcomes. Even though women live longer, by the way, as a rule, women live longer than men. But statistically, a lot of men die young because we're idiots. We are reckless, territorial, aggressive. We play with guns, dirt bikes. We drive too fast. We drink and drive. All this stuff. We do it at higher rates. We smoke more than women. We drink more than women. So men die younger as a result of their high-risk proclivities, not because of disease. And I promise in the health business, the majority of customers and actually the majority of distributors are women. It's a female industry in general. And so that's why I saved here. I just saved this chart in billions of dollars. So other than heart disease and high cholesterol, women are spending 
billions more for back problems, diabetes, hypertension, pulmonary diseases, osteoarthritis, trauma-related disorders, mental disorders, and cancer. And remember, breast cancer is the most common form of cancer. Who gets breast cancer? Women. Where do these diagnoses come from? Doctors and checkups and tests. This is all doctors have. Tests, drugs, and surgeries. So women end up getting the brunt of that, spending the most money, and they say yes too often, in my opinion. That's why so many women have health problems that they come to us about. So here I just saved another paragraph of him talking about the bureaucracy of hospitals. Reimbursement is item by item, from dressings to dressing changes, from pill to pill, and that's only for materials. How much should room and board cost? Where do you build in the cost of nursing personnel, pharmaceutical services, and the like? How do you assure that the bills are not spuriously inflated? The answers are in layers of regulations, forms, designations, oversight, and burgeoning bureaucracies in every hospital and in every other practice setting. All this added to the Medicare free structure, so that you can buy an aspirin in a supermarket for a few pennies, but the charge on an inpatient bill is many dollars. A complete blood count is now done by machine for a cost of less than 50 cents, but Medicare is billed for each element that is reported at a cumulative cost of $50 or more. The pressure to inflate the cost of services spills over to the inflated sense of worth of the administrators of these not-for-profit institutions. Because many hospitals are supposed to be not-for-profit, right? But they're caught up in a lot of this same bureaucratic stuff. And anytime you have a bureaucracy, whether it's a corporation or a government, they have less incentive to spend money efficiently. This is a very important point. I wrote about this as well in my book, Everything the Government Does is Bad for Us. But it also applies to corporations. When you get these big organizations, every department needs to spend their money so that they can ask for more money from the head of the corporation or the government. They ask for more money for next year's budget. So all departments and all these big companies, they all want to spend more money on themselves. They might want to cut costs on production and fire you know, lower workers or whatever, but they want a bigger budget. They want to raise, right? So even in Canada, where the healthcare is supposed to all be free to the citizens, supposed to all be handled by the government, we have these crazy cost inflations as well. We have these inflated bureaucracies. And he even uh, went in and talked about the uh, inflated sense of entitlement by a lot of this administrative staff. And by the way, a lot of these administrators, they, they would have medical degrees and business degrees too. So like they're actually more educated, more specialized than the doctors who are working in the hospitals. And as a result, some of these administrators can get paid more than the doctors. This is why healthcare costs are out of control, by the way. And although this book touched on it just a little bit, I would like to emphasize to you that this is the reason there are no jobs in America. No good paying jobs. Or at least they're dwindling, at least they're going down. And this is why a lot of not amazing jobs, but regular jobs, jobs that sustain economies, manufacturing jobs, this is why a lot of them are done in Canada. If you didn't know, I grew up in an area that was surrounded by box factories and some other factories, but box factories were a surprisingly huge and still are a surprisingly huge industry in Ontario, Canada, and Quebec, Canada, and in Canada in general. And where do we send our boxes? We send them to America. Why doesn't America make boxes? You guys have forests. You have plenty of forests. You have Alaska, you have Montana. A lot of people living in the city, they hear that forests are in trouble and all this. Well, I promise there's more forests than we've ever had on record, and we couldn't harvest all of it. Even in my province alone, we could supply the entire world with paper we couldn't cut down a tenth of the forest before it grew back. These are oceans of trees we're talking about, and America has access to them. They could even buy the raw material from us and then process it in America. 
these were viable industries, right? Auto manufacturing was a viable industry in America before healthcare costs got passed on to employers. And so the average employee might not realize how much of their economy is controlled by these healthcare costs, but I'm not the only one saying that it's because of health insurance that American jobs are no longer there. There's nothing fundamentally different about making boxes in Canada except our healthcare costs are paid by the government instead of being paid by the employer. Yes, we pay higher taxes, but it still ends up being less than you guys are paying for private insurance and employment insurance programs. So back to the reading. The pressure to inflate the cost of services spills over into the inflated sense of worth of the administrators of these not-for-profit institutions. They become the superstructure rather than the infrastructure. The running of an organization rendered ever more complex requires more people who consider their skills more valuable than the skill sets required for delivering care itself. By the 1980s, hospital administration had evolved from a management track that was neither glamorous nor particularly well-paid to a large, visible, lucrative, and sought-after career path. Eyebrows were not raised when someone with an MD decided that an MBA would be useful. Eyebrows are not raised when an administrator of a state-supported hospital is paid much more than the governor. In brackets, though not as much as the football coach. So he goes on quite a bit more about that, and I'm going to move on. I saved the point here because it uh, threw me off guard. I'll, I'll read you the whole sentence. All drugs on patent in the United States are priced on average 50% higher than they are in the European Union and higher yet than in Japan which leads the world in per capita consumption of prescription pharmaceuticals. I know that's why I saved it. That threw me off. Uh, Japan, really? I, I didn't know that. Japan is highest per capita consumption of prescription pharmaceuticals. Did not know that. They're doing pretty good on lifespan. They also smoke more than Americans, much more. This is something I'm going to have to look into. And this is one of the reasons I thought this podcast would be fun because... I'm not going to share something otherwise that I don't know is true or I'm really confident in, but I just read this for the first time the other day and marked it, and now I'm sharing it with you. Okay, so currently I'm getting a couple of different answers here, but the Worldometer is telling me that Hong Kong has the current longest-lived uh, country, even though it's not an independent country at the moment, and their average right now is 85.29 years females at 88, males at 82, very typical. Remember, females live longer as a rule. And Japan is just underneath Hong Kong at 85.03 years. So they're both at 85 years average. Very similar numbers here. And yet Japan apparently has the world's highest per capita consumption of prescription pharmaceuticals. And what he was talking about here had to do with price structuring. And we're out of context on this point here. I just wanted to share that one point. Not going to read more about price structuring unless it is the next point that I saved here. Okay, here's an interesting point. I'll read it and then comment. The process values effort over effect, which is contrary to the principles of evidence-based medicine. The incentive is to train to do more, even if the doing is ineffective. There is no incentive to be expert in informing medical decision-making, particularly if the informing results in a patient's desire to forego something with a high RVU. And an RVU is relative value units. We are not going to get into that. But he's saying that it wouldn't help a doctor to be better at informing a patient if that information 
is likely to cause the patient to say no to something with a high RVU. So he's saying the process values effort over effect. If you're in a hospital dying, it looks negligent if the doctor doesn't do anything. But Dr. Hadler here is pointing out that many or most medical treatments are actually more harmful than good. Many of them are not helpful at all. So he's saying it wouldn't help a doctor to be better at talking to a patient about this because the patient would probably say no, which I would say that's a good choice. You should say no more often. Doctors want to take your appendix out? No. They want to put a stent in your artery? No. You can't show me that it's effective, and this book goes into great detail on that too. And conversely, he's still talking about cost structure here. He says, there's no incentive for higher quality performance or for caring for the more severely afflicted. Why? Because if a patient is going to die soon afterward, then that's actually a low value thing for the hospital to consider. Again, the book goes more into that, but that's interesting as well. And many doctors and nurses have written about this in many other books, that when somebody does look like they're at the end of the line, they really don't have much incentive to save them or to give them the best quality performance. And he's also saying that cognitive specialties are given short shrift in this calculation. And this calculation involves what a hospital is prioritizing and paying out, right? So he's saying cognitive specialists are given short shrift, meaning the person who sits down and talks with somebody, from my perspective, they're giving them a ton of value. Maybe the most value they're even going to get in the health circuit is just sitting down and talking with somebody, especially somebody who knows what they're talking about and their short piece of advice actually helps you. Someone who does that is going to be compensated less in the medical world because, again, this process values effort over effect meaning it doesn't really matter if you get better or not doctors are paid for doing the thing they're paid for the operation even if you die on the table and whether you get better or not doesn't matter to their bottom line it's the harsh way to put it but that's what he's saying here and someone who sits down and talks with you it's not worth that much to the billing department you're not the hero meanwhile many actual problems are in people's heads Many times the stress of not knowing and not understanding is killing them, literally. And people tell us all the time, tell me all the time, that one of the most valuable things we ever did for them is just to sit down and talk with them and give them information that makes sense. That's it. That's it. A lot of them say it felt good just to be listened to because they'd been rushed around the medical world for so long and no one ever sits down and really puts effort into them. Also another thing written about in a lot of these books, by doctors and nurses, they know that these, quote, problem patients, these difficult patients, they don't want to work with them. Nurses don't get paid enough. Doctors don't know enough anyways. They can't even help these people. So they keep coming back and back. It's, it's annoying from the provider perspective. And those people might really need the cognitive specialists, the type of people, the type of practitioner who will sit down and work with you, maybe sit down and work with your diet, something like that. Those are the type of people who are not going to, uh, maybe even be present in the hospital at all. And if they are there, they're probably not getting paid as much as the anesthesiologists and the other heroes of assertive medicine, we can call it. By the way, one more comment on this subject here. I've saved a lot of appendixes. We in the business as aggregate have also saved a lot of appendixes, but me personally, I've saved a lot of appendixes. Maybe half a dozen now at this point. I consider that a lot. Now, getting your appendix removed is not going to be the most dramatic thing in your life. It's not going to be the biggest thing that may lead to disease or something. But your immune system will be impacted for the rest of your life. If you were asking me, I would say you want to increase your antioxidants and probiotics big time forever. 
as a precautionary measure because the appendix used to hold probiotics. It's a storehouse of probiotics, so it's a big part of your immune system. Now, since the medical system favors this assertive approach, that's what doctors do. They say, let's take the appendix out. Oh, it's inflamed. Let's take the appendix out. That's assertive, right? That's doing something. That's what they get paid for. That's what they get hailed heroes for. And if they don't do anything, they might get called negligent. They might even get sued for not performing a procedure. But a good doctor knows how risky procedures can be, certain ones, and how poor the outcomes often are for many procedures. So a good doctor should try and talk you out of procedures whenever possible, yet that's seen as negligent in our overall system. So I save appendixes by telling people to stop eating for 48 hours, period. Stop eating for 48 hours and the inflammation will probably be away. You can have liquid foods, you can have broths, vegetable juices, fruit juices, water, salty water. If you have supplements, you can take your supplements, but no food for 48 hours at least. The inflammation just goes away. I have yet to have a case where that wasn't the truth, where the inflammation stayed. 48 hours, how long it takes. Maybe it takes longer than that for some people. I haven't seen it yet. So my approach saves appendix with nothing. It doesn't involve selling products or anything. My products probably will not arrive within 48 hours, so that that can't be my approach anyways. If this is an emergency, if your appendix is about to burst, the only thing I have for you is to stop eating for 48 hours. And to never eat gluten again, because it was probably gluten that caused the inflammation in the first place. And if it has burst, you do need to remove that. It's a medical emergency now at this point. But it could have been avoided just by stopping eating temporarily and by not eating gluten ever. And I would say, like, fix your digestion. There's obviously a digestion problem. Let's go ahead and fix that. And that should not be an issue. But that's not assertive, is it? It's not assertive. Insurance will not pay me for that, for sure. Yet that little piece of advice can save you a lot of misery, a lot of potential complications, and you can die from these minor surgeries. It's not the biggest risk involved, but it's a possibility. You can always die from any minor surgery. Even getting a wisdom tooth removed, you could uh, die from anesthesia. You get a permanent brain damage, permanent memory loss from anesthesia. You could have a serious challenge afterward from the standard use of antibiotics after any small procedure, including removing your wisdom teeth. So, yeah, you can remove all that just by not uh, inflaming your intestine and by just removing the inflammation, by removing the food that causes the inflammation. But that's not uh, sexy enough for the medical world, and insurance will never pay for that advice, apparently. So here's a paragraph I'm not sure why I saved. He's talking about cholesterol again. Let's assume you are a perfectly well, middle-aged man who learns that his cholesterol is above the level some committee defined as normal. <laughs> that is a problem. We say 220 to 270 is the optimal range for cholesterol, and even higher than that doesn't seem to be a problem because it doesn't cause heart disease in populations that consistently have more than 270, such as the Eskimo or the Matsai. So yeah, some committee of doctors came in and said that uh, 180 or 200 or 170 is high, depending on what country you're in, and we would say that that's actually low. They're trying to get you on statin drugs, and it's you actually have low cholesterol, and that's actually not good. Cholesterol is super important. More of it to us is actually a good thing. It's not the same as clogged arteries. Arteries are clogged by processed foods. Cholesterol is oxidized by processed foods. Cholesterol is supposed to be floating around in your blood, and it's an active molecule that actually does stuff. And the free radical particles from burned animal fats and oxidized oils and burned sugars, any sugar cooked over 350 degrees Fahrenheit is burned, and this can oxidize the fat in your blood and cause this active molecule to just be a free-floating glob that can glob up places that get stuck all over the place. It's no longer an active molecule. Anyway, so 
Here, let's assume you are a perfectly well middle-aged man who learns that his cholesterol is above the level some committee defined as normal. Now you're worried. You have a risk factor for heart disease, stroke, and death before your time. Naturally, you feel relieved that your doctor can pummel your cholesterol below the upper limits of normal if you take her favorite statin drug. Few can refuse. Even fewer pause to wonder whether the result of doing so is meaningful to them. It turns out that if I treat 100 men with a statin and 100 with a placebo, after 5 years, 96 would be alive in both groups. Of the 4 who died in each group, 2 died of a heart attack. I wonder if these men would be as worried about their high cholesterol if they knew that their risk of death was 2% in 5 years with or without treatment. Of the 96 still alive and taking a statin, 4 had survived a heart attack. Of the 96 still alive on a placebo, six had survived a heart attack. So if a hundred men swallow a statin every day for five years, two might be spared the experience of a non-fatal heart attack. That is a surprisingly meager win for swallowing 1,800 pills. And he was saying he was uh, borrowing this example from the classic West of Scotland trial from the New England Journal of Medicine, volume 333, 1995. And that study is held up to this day as the support for treating well people with statins to prevent heart disease. That means treating people who don't have heart disease ahead of time with statin drugs to prevent heart attacks. That was the data that they were basing it on. Meanwhile, that's really not an impressive result. And again, go back to the lack of controls point. These people aren't controlled. This, this is not statistically significant to me. I don't expect any of these people to be completely nourished properly avoiding all the bad foods and everything. And he says here, in a randomly controlled trial, 2% is right on the cusp of irreproducibility, meaning they can't reproduce it, and therefore unbelievably small. Such small differences often do not reproduce when the trial is repeated. That means you do almost as well on the placebo, and maybe just as well. That's how you can win the lottery without buying a ticket. When the effect size is very small on a randomized controlled drug trial, the thinking should not be, someone wins. But maybe, I would win without the risks of taking the drug. Right? The one person out of a hundred or whatever who prevented their heart attack. Supposedly. I won't even let anyone check my cholesterol, or my prostate-specific antigen, for that matter. I never submit to screening unless the test is accurate, the disease is important, and something important can be done about it. Wow, that was... that's quite a statement there. So he already said he won't let anyone check his cholesterol, but now he won't let his uh, PSA be tested, which I say is a good idea. Men and women, but men, don't let doctors go poking around your rectum. First of all, they can puncture your intestine with that garden hose that they stick up your rump. That can cause a belly infection, and you can die from that. People do die from that. And actually, to my knowledge, you can look this up, but to my knowledge, more people die of prostate exams, actually. Because if you puncture the prostate, it releases a hormone called prostaglandin, and that can stop your heart. It's actually very dangerous to have them poking around your rectum. Prostate inflammation is caused by food problems. It can be reversed. You can talk to me or talk to us about that. Find our contact information through the description of this podcast. Go to my website, noticebooks.org. You'll see plenty of contact points. And we can help you get your PSA down, if that's what you already have. But he's saying I wouldn't let anyone poke around there. And I say that's a good idea, especially not a biopsy, anything like that. Keep them out of your rectum. Because why, guys? Because if they find something, this is what he's saying in this next sentence. 
I never submit to screening unless the test is accurate. Okay, so is the test accurate? I mean, do these people even know what this marker means? If they find an inflamed prostate, do they even know what caused the inflammation? Do they even know how to reduce the inflammation? They do know how a little bit with antibiotics, by the way, but we would I would come in and fix your digestion and that would do the same thing. But if it is accurate, is the disease important, right? Is your inflamed prostate important? Well, it's not that important. I know it's annoying. You have to urinate all the time and so on. But you, like I said, you can get that inflammation gone. And is it worth risking your life to fix this problem via surgery or via poisonous drugs, toxic, strong drugs, not just antibiotics? I would say, no, it's not that worth it because the disease is not that important. There's an excellent book on this subject, by the way, called The Invasion of the Prostate Snatchers. Can't remember the author off the top of my head. The Invasion of the Prostate Snatchers. And this can enlighten you to the fact that regular doctors know that prostate, inflamed prostate pulps in your colon, something like that. This is not going to kill you. What's probably going to kill you is treatment or just tests, poking around your rectum and puncturing the intestine or releasing prostate gland. And those things can kill you. But the prostate's probably not going to kill you. The colon's not going to kill you. People die of heart attack, stroke, car accident, whatever. On autopsy, they have these pulps in their rectum. And it didn't mean anything for their cause of death. If you look up and see how many people die of prostate cancer and whatnot, those statistics come from the medical model, meaning those people have gone to a medical doctor, had them poke around the rectum, had them give them a diagnosis so they can be included in the statistics in the first place, right? How do you become a person with prostate cancer or with colorectal cancer? How do you become one of those people without going to the doctor? You can't. You never show up in the statistics unless you go to the doctor. So they go to the doctor, and most people do say yes to the treatment, which means drugs and surgery. And anyone who dies of those drugs and surgery or dies for any other reason after they've gotten this diagnosis of the prostate or the colorectal cancer, you are considered a death by colon cancer or prostate cancer. Isn't that absurd? This is how you can have something that nobody dies from, nobody dies from colorectal cancer, actually turn out to be a deadly disease on the statistics because, again, testing leads to treatment and treatment kills. So he says, I will never submit to screening unless the test is accurate. Number one, the disease is important. Number two, and number three, most importantly, something important can be done about it. This is why we don't recommend going to doctors. If you come to us and say, hey, how do I support my prostate? Or, hey, I'm, I have to urinate every 15 minutes. I, pfft, sounds, like a, sounds like a prostate problem to me. It kind of feels that way. What can you do to help me out? I'll give you the exact same advice then that I would if you came to me and said, hey, I just went to the doctor and he told me I had prostate cancer. The advice would be the exact same. It would be the exact same. You'd be getting off the bad foods. You'd be getting on the 90 inch nutrients. You'd be getting on some extra prostate support. Knowing me, I'd probably start you on a month of digestion protocol first, especially if we're talking about a problem in the colorectal region. I know that has a lot to do with clean digestion, so that's where I would probably start. And it wouldn't matter whether you have a diagnosis or not. But doctors, all they have for you is things that can harm you. Drugs and surgeries. And more tests. So his last point here, and something important can be done about it, he's only going to go get a test. If the test actually says something, and we agree on what it says, and what it says is actually important, like, hey, this marker actually matters. And then still, he's not going to do the test unless something can actually be done about it. What is the point of being told you have prostate cancer, colorectal pulps in your colon from a profession who has nothing positive to offer you? They can't tell you how to just get rid of it naturally. I can, but I don't need a test. See where I'm going with this? <laughs> to actually help people, you can just look at their symptoms and you can give the same advice anyways, just like we would treat farm animals. You give them all the pellets. You give them all the clean water. You give them the extra selenium. 
when they're pregnant, nursing, when they're born, then you don't need tests to be a farmer. You need nutrients. Okay, next paragraph here that I saved. There are many large data sets, some of which are updated with some frequency. The data are readily available. The urge to test for associations is nearly irresistible. So taking data sets and looking for common factors, soda pop, meat, smoking, whatever. He's saying the urge to test for these associations is nearly irresistible. And I would also throw in that as a researcher, this is the type of research where it doesn't cost a lot of money. So maybe you don't have a lot of grant money, maybe you don't have any grant money. Maybe this is the type of project that you do. You just look at other data sets and look for associations and publish something. So the urge to test for associations is nearly irresistible. It is at least as great as the likelihood of being fooled by any association that is found. Peter Austin and his colleagues at the University of Toronto provided a sardonic but very telling example in an analysis they published in 2006. Testing multiple statistical hypotheses resulted in spurious associations. A study of astrological signs and health. In the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology, edition 59. They had access to all sorts of health data on over 10 million residents of Ontario. Hey, that's where I live. They performed an analysis asking whether any of the 223 of the most common reasons for hospitalization associated with a person's astrologic sign. They found several reproducible statistical associations, such as between being born a Sagittarian and fracturing one's arm, or being born under Leo and suffering a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. If they corrected mathematically for the number of tests required to tease out such associations, none remained. But the lessons remain. No one should pummel large datasets seeking insights for which they were not designed in the first place without a great deal of trepidation. And no one should place stock in any inferences drawn from such exercises without even more trepidation. That's an interesting paragraph. And I would say this is most spurious in things like smoking. This is one of the reasons many people have such large problems with the supposed wisdom that smoking is causing all these diseases because, as I just posted in my most recent podcast here with Dr. Wallach, a pathologist who told us that on autopsy they can't tell if you smoke or not with 100% certainty unless you tell them you smoke. Your organs will not tell them if you smoke or not. Definitely check that podcast out if you haven't. But given that a pathologist can't tell if you smoke or not, they can't make lung cancer in laboratory animals, not reliably, not consistently, not easily, not even by making them smoke unrealistic amounts of tobacco, but yet they fish in these huge data sets looking for tobacco associations and they give us these doomsday predictions about what happens if we smoke based on those. So he's saying don't look at large data sets, and I agree. Unless that study was designed to look for specific things, you don't want to go in there projecting your own associations, looking for your own associations. You only want to look at the data for which the study was designed to tease out. That's what that paragraph was about, and there's much more of that in this book. Okay, so in the next paragraph here, he's been going on about angioplasties and stints, showing that the data says they're not very effective at all. In fact, they're, they're pretty harmful. Lots of complications. They don't do what they said they were going to do. They're extremely expensive. Of course, they pay these uh, assertive hero doctors the most, right? Surgeons, heart surgeons, they get paid tons of money. Very glamorous, very prestigious career. But uh, these stents don't work. They don't address the original problem in the first place at all, which was caused by food. Once again, food, nutrient deficiencies, same old stuff. 
stent doesn't fix the problem, even though when they explain it, it kind of sounds like it would do something, but it doesn't. And he's, he's calling this violence, actually. Was any of this violence to coronary arteries doing more for the patient than the best of medical therapy? Which is a few pills and getting some advice about getting on with life? The answer resounds in the negative. No patient is rewarded in terms of longevity, incidence of heart attacks, or likelihood of chest pain for having submitted to these expensive technical and technological feats, and many suffer harm in the course of the procedure. Here are my picks as the best of the lot of randomized clinical trials comparing violence with perspective. In the RITA-2 trial, 1,000 carefully selected patients with angina in 1997 were randomized to angioplasty or medical therapy. The consequences were last reported in 2003. Those initially randomized to non-invasive treatment did as well as those who underwent angioplasty. A Swiss team randomized elderly patients with angina to optimized medical therapy or early invasive therapy with angioplasty, with or without stenting or to bypass graft surgery and followed them for four years. There was no advantage to the early invasive strategy in terms of death or myocardial infarction. The COURAGE trial is particularly damning. No one with stable angina should be told that angioplasty, with or without stenting, prevents a heart attack or stroke or prolongs life. In the multi-center OAT trial, funded by the National Institutes of Health, 2,000 patients were recruited within a month of their heart attack, because they had persistent blockage of the relevant coronary artery and heart damage. All received optimal medical care. Half were randomized to also undergo angioplasty and stent placement. Over the next four years, there was no difference between the two groups in terms of recurrent heart attack, death, or heart failure. If anything, those with the stents fared less well. In BARI-2D, that's B-A-R-I-2D, study, the comparison was with high-risk patients with stable angina and type 2 diabetes. Over 2,000 were randomized. There is no advantage to prompt revascularization over medical therapy for coronary artery disease in this setting. So he's just naming a bunch of studies here that are showing that the regular old drugs and call me in two weeks or, you know, Mediterranean diet, basic change advice that you would get from a doctor, call me in two weeks, that that works better than any of the invasive therapies angioplasty, stents, or bypass graft surgery. The MASS-2 trial randomized 611 patients with multivessel coronary artery disease and stable angina with preserved heart muscle function. At one year, there was no difference in cardiac death or acute myocardial infarction between patients in any of the groups, regular therapy or an invasive therapy. No difference. No difference in outcome, if anything, the people with the stents fared worse in some studies. So, he says, there you have it. The leading state science judges in the audience were dumbfounded. He's talking about a tribunal that he was a part of. It was actually a mock trial to a bunch of judges. The chief justice of the host state and several other justices were dumbfounded. The judge who was role-playing the defense attorney for Dr. Clayton's malpractice insurance company was silenced. The judge who was role-playing as the plaintiff's attorney on behalf of Mrs. Jones smiled. The assembled judges were asked to vote on whether, according to the Daubert standard, which is what they're—it's what this mock trial was about. It's about this Daubert standard, and the Daubert standard is a rule of evidence regarding the admissibility of expert witness testimony. So a panel would decide based on the Daubert standard whether to allow a witness to testify. It's not necessarily supposed to be about medical efficacy, but 
this mock trial exercise is teaching judges how to understand medical evidence, basically. They're the ones that ultimately have to rule whether something is admissible or not. So according to the Daubert standard, my testimony should be allowed before the jury. They voted overwhelmingly in the affirmative. So why is it that over a million such invasive procedures are performed in the United States each year and indemnified by all private insurers, by Medicaid programs, and by Medicare? If angioplasty was a pharmaceutical, do you think the FDA could find a way to license it when the critical data prerequisite to licensing it was a series of negative randomized controlled trials? But procedures are not subjected to licensing. Hey, did you hear that? Procedures are not subjected to licensing. Drugs are, procedures are not. And devices such as stents are held to a much lower standard. They must be safe in the short term, but there need not be a demonstration of efficacy. But the drug-eluting stents led to more harm in some studies. Shouldn't the FDA remove them from the market? The FDA convened an advisory committee on which stakeholders were well represented and came to the conclusion that prescribing clopidegrel for these stented patients was safety enough. So they give them this drug to minimize some of the problems with stenting, some of the early problems that show up. Hence, the FDA is not standing between Americans and the invasive cardiology and cardiovascular surgery community. Since the coronary artery plaque removal enterprise is the recipient of a sizable portion of the healthcare dollar, it has the fiscal wherewithal to make certain that it is favored in the media, in Congress, and generally in the mind of the public. A few of the leading medical journalists, such as John Kerry in Business Week, have had the editorial support to display the relevant science as early as 2005, but such efforts are overwhelmed by the miasma of marketing. Miasma means like bad air or like deadly fog. It's what they thought caused the plague. So he goes on a lot about this, but uh, he's saying that if we actually had a standard of efficacy such as the Daubert standard, that uh, all these cardiovascular surgeries probably wouldn't happen or would be regulated much more tightly. So I saved another point here on another page where he's talking about chest x-rays, but he was just talking about that women are more likely than men to undergo chest and abdominal pelvic CT studies and receive the greater share of the risk for cancer as a result. So he's saying that CT scans, they give off radiation, so this is a risk factor for cancer. Radiation can cause cancer. And he's showing in a chart that just shows that women are more likely than men to undergo chest and abdominal pelvic CT studies. So, therefore, they share the greater risk for cancer as a result. And he says, It is estimated that 29,000 excess cancers will result from the CT exposure in 2007. Just in 2007. And that excludes people who were scanned after a diagnosis of cancer and those performed in the last five years of life. If you assume 50% mortality from these radiation-induced cancers, that's about 15,000 people who die before their time. From screening. This is from screening. Screening is not prevention. And screening could cause diseases itself, especially when they use radiation for the screening. Woo! Some of this toxicity can be blunted by making sure that the machines were delivering the minimum amount of ionizing radiation necessary to result in an accurate image. Regulations to accomplish this are forthcoming, meaning they're not there yet. There's no regulations on how much radiation the operators of a CT scan are actually using. Much more can be blunted through attention to evidence regarding the utility of CT scans in particular settings. So he's saying we could reduce a lot of the harm too if we actually evaluated the utility, like how useful is this scan, in particular settings. For example, the science says the yield of important information from a head CT following blunt trauma without loss of consciousness is very low. So doing a CT after a concussion, 
doesn't give you useful information, basically. Or the yield of a CT of the lumbar spine for regional lower back pain is worse than low. It leads to misinformation and misinterpretation and increases the risk for unnecessary surgery. Hey, there we are again. Unnecessary surgery, right? What does testing lead to? Testing leads to treatment. What is treatment from a medical doctor? It means test drugs and surgery. That's it, period. So you get these tests and what does it lead to? An increased risk for unnecessary surgery. And he's saying basically, we don't even need to ask the question, how likely is it that this CT scan can be used to my advantage? He's saying the citizen patient shouldn't even have to ask that question because we have the science to define the indications for such tests and to stop underwriting their abuse. Meaning stop paying for doctors to do CT scans if CT scans are useless. The citizen patient, the informed patient, should not have to ask, is this CT scan going to be used to my advantage? Is it useful? Does it give me useful information, accurate information about an important disease of which something that I could do something about because of this test? If none of that is there, the standard should be set that we should not use that test. Okay, next point I've got here, only a few left. This was a good point. Okay, so he was talking about the U-shaped curve that they say people who drink only a couple of drinks a day live the longest. That's the top of the U. At the bottom of the U, on both sides, you've got people who don't drink at all and people who drink too much. So they're saying there's this sweet spot that a couple of drinks a day is good for you. I've had problems with this data, but he brought a very interesting point to the table. He said, who drinks a couple of drinks a day, a cocktail or two? but not more and not less. Could this be a marker of a more advantaged lifestyle? Could alcohol consumption be a surrogate measure of one station in society? Is this the confounder that so many epidemiologists neglected to take into consideration all these years? Could something about one's status in one's ecosystem be more determinative of when one dies, of all-cause mortality, than any element of daily living? So that means... Comfortable people, rich people, live longer than the poorest people in a stratified capitalist society. I'm not saying that capitalism causes disease. I'm saying that the longest-lived populations, the Blue Zones, the people up in the Hunza Mountains, the Georgians, the Azerbaijanis, the people in the Nicoya Peninsula, Costa Rica, the people in the few long-lived islands in Okinawa, Sardinia, and etc. These people live largely outside of state control. They have their own fairly comfortable life, strong communities, strong families, traditions faith, all that stuff. But in regular society, America, Canada, Australia, whatever, rich people are much more comfortable than poor people. Poor people die much younger at, as a rule. And in smoking data too, something I like to bring up, the lower classes are the biggest smokers. So lower classes in general have a whole bunch of health problems due to poverty, due to eating junk foods, due to living in these food deserts, they call them. Areas where there is no good food in your neighborhood. So poor people in the modern world have all kinds of bad habits. So do rich people. I've seen plenty of rich people eat junk food and smoke and do all that stuff. But there are many stresses in the poor person's life or the broke person's life that just aren't there for someone who's more comfortable. Simple things like childcare. You can go out when you feel like it if you can afford childcare. And stress itself is a killer. That's a whole other conversation. But in general... A lot of the health problems that we're talking about when we're talking about major statistics, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, all this, a lot of these people fall into the lower classes and it's easy to correlate them with smoking and blame smoking for it. Or it's easy to miss something and say that, oh, these two drinks a day could actually be good for you. Whereas he's saying, could this be a marker of a more advantaged lifestyle? 
And I, I think so. I think he's bang on on this point. Who has a couple of drinks a day? That sounds very comfortable. I will have a couple of drinks. Not every day, but like, I'm only going to sit down and have one or two drinks. Glasses of wine, if I'm going to drink. And I am very comfortable and advantaged here. If I was stressed and heartbroken and all this stuff, I don't know, maybe I would drink the whole bottle. Anyways, interesting. Is the alcohol any good or is it just the people who drink that sweet spot of two drinks a day? Are they the most comfortable among us? And I think he's right. I think that's a very, very uh, strong probability that those are just reflecting a more comfortable person. Okay, so next point here. He's going back to talking about screening tests. And he's reiterating a point he made earlier. He just flipped it around. I'm going to read it to you because I saved it. In other words, you don't want a screening test unless, one, the result is reliable. Test is accurate. That's what he said before. One, the result is reliable. Two, the disease or potential disease is important. And three, we can do something about it. So he already said that, but it's great to restate that. Don't get a test unless the disease is actually important, the test is accurate, and you can actually do something about it with that information. And he said a lot more on that. I'm just going to move on. Okay, so here he's talking about genetics, and this is something we bring up. So breast cancer is the most common form of cancer, and they blame these two genes, BRCA1, BRCA2. That's how we usually pronounce it, BRCA1 and 2, BRCA, BRCA, BRCA1 and 2. So I didn't know this either. He's saying in Israel, women have this gene mutation, they call it. He says genotype, which I, I, that's a better way to put it. They have this genotype. 2.5% of women, Israeli women, have this genotype, and only a quarter of a percent of American women have it. And he says, yet the incidence of breast cancer is not elevated in Israel. It's not. It's not, right? So Israeli women have literally 10 times the amount of this gene they definitely don't have 10 times the breast cancer. And so he's saying the genes are not a sufficient marker of a dramatically increased risk. They're not. So all this hubbub blue about the uh, BRCA1, BRCA2 that we hear in America, Canada, it doesn't make sense. So that was a good little point there about the BRCA1, BRCA2. And actually, that was the last point that I saved in this book. Quite a good book, I think. Lots of information in here. Like I said, it's a little bit dense to read. I had to read it a little bit slowly. Not an A-plus for communication. But worth your time and money, The Citizen Patient, Norton M. Hadler, H-A-D-L-E-R. And I gave it a good review on my Instagram. Of course, you can find my Instagram through my website, noticebooks.org, notusbooks.org. Because you try and spell my last name, Alexander, on here, it's not uh, as it sounds. You're going to have an easier time just going to noticebooks.org to see my book reviews in real time. And then also on noticebooks.org, I've got book reviews, hundreds of them all categorized and sorted for you. I do monthly book review videos on YouTube, my YouTube channel, The Real Notice. Again, you can find all of this on noticebooks.org. And if you like this episode, reach out to me and tell me. We don't have comments here on the podcast, so let me know. I think this was actually pretty good. I think it was pretty fun. If I'm marking points in a book, it's probably an interesting point. I think this is a great way to share that and to learn these things together. So let me know, hit me up on any platform, Instagram, email, plenty of books I could do this for. Check out my own books on health, of course, fake diseases, and everything you should know about healthy blood sugar, which is not only about blood sugar, it's about all of health. All of my books also have free versions, audio and video versions. You can find all of that, as always, on noticebooks.org, notusbooks.org. And that's it for now. I appreciate you guys. Until next time.